for those of you that don't know me, uh, this is not my day job. I've only spoken at Harvest twice on a Sunday morning, and um, I really thought the third time was going to be a charm and that there was going to be no fear tonight. And I want to admit something to you. I am absolutely terrified. And the problem about being a Christian is we're not allowed to be afraid. You see, so I'm guilty as well as afraid. And so that's not a great feeling. Um, I, I'm honest with you in that because I believe in something called an inside-out life. I, I think that on Sundays, sometimes we come to church and people see our outside and we compare somebody's outside with our own inside. And so you might arrive at church and you might have had a fight with your husband or your wife or your kids or the dog and... Um, you come and you, you've got your Sunday smile on and your Sunday best and your Sunday hug and you see somebody else that has their Sunday smile and their Sunday best and their Sunday hug on and you compare your inside to their outside and you come up short because every time we compare the real part of us, which is our inside, with somebody else's ideal outside, we're going to come up short. And so... That's why I believe in vulnerability. And I know that public speakers are not supposed to give their audience a hint of their insecurity. But luckily we're in church and there's no audience in church. And uh, so you're not spectators. Um, I feel your heart cheering me on. Um, <laughs> testimonies are great when they're complete. And... Um, I had really planned tonight to share a complete testimony that I wasn't going to be afraid. But you know what? I've been thinking that testimonies um, are testimonies when we're in them as well and before the journey is complete. And so this is my testimony. One day I'll stand and my knees won't be shaking. And it'll be great and you guys can all cheer me on. But right now um, it's not complete yet. And... Um, I'm going to be okay with that, and I hope you will as well. I was chatting to some friends of ours. Rob and I were out for dinner the other night, and we chatted to some friends, and, and they were speaking and encouraging me about me speaking. And um, I mentioned they're prophetic, by the way, and operate in the gift of healing. And so I mentioned sort of by the side, you know, I'm really afraid. And I kind of thought, like, they would go shabam or, like, something would happen and take something out or at least put something better in. But they didn't, and I was quite disappointed in the moment. But instead, something happened that was incredibly valuable. They allowed me to feel the feeling. And they said, um, you know, it's okay to stay scared enough that you're always reliant on God. And um, it's a lovely feeling that when somebody gives you permission to feel what you're feeling instead of trying to fix it all the time. And uh, so tonight, I'm going to tell you that I'm scared, but I'm not scared for being scared, because there's something about stepping out um, and doing something, and I know that we serve a wonderfully kind Heavenly Father who loves us, and He wants His children to so badly succeed, and I'm a mom, and I have a mother's heart, and I want my kids to do so well, and you know what, if they don't, 
I'm going to be the first one to scoop them up and dust them off and put the plasters on their knees and soothe them and encourage them back into wellness and say, you know what, baby, you've got the brave heart in you and you're going to be able to do it again and I'm going to send you back out and encourage you and get you ready to do that. So I figure with the Heavenly Father heart, if that's my mother's heart, can you imagine how God feels about us stepping out and doing something difficult. You see, when we step out in faith, it's got to be a win-win. Because if you do well, like that's great. But if you don't, he's going to come in and scoop us up and put us on his lap and shake the dust off and put the plasters on and put the brave heart back in us. Because that's the heart of the Father for us. And so as I've been praying this week about this information, I have good information tonight, but I was praying and saying, God, I don't want it to be about information. It has to be about something more than that. We don't need more information. We need heart change in us. And God gave me a picture, and I don't get pictures often, so it's quite significant, um, of this clear, like this big lake, and it's beautiful, and the water is deep blue and a rich color, and it's very, very, very still. And in the middle of the lake, a rock drops and um, slap bang in the middle. And of course, in my mind, I'm going like, how can a rock drop in the middle? Like I should be on the side, skimming the rock on the side, but it wasn't. It was a rock in the middle. And as the rock drops, these ripples go out on the side of the lake. And as they get to the shore, the ripples get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And so by the time the water hits the shore, they're like full on waves. And I, pray, I was praying and asking God, like, what is this? And he said, Marilyn, I, I want that. Why is the net not so much harder in the morning? <laughs> I want that to be you. I want that to be you when you land in your community and in your workplace and where you are. I want that to be you. I want you to cause a ripple effect in the grocery store, in the marketplace, wherever you are, in the restaurant, when people give you bad service, especially. I want you to carry my image because my image will change the culture and it will make a difference. And so the message that I've prepared tonight is a message about being an image bearer. We are born to bear the image of God. And that has got to make a difference in our community. And each of you are in a lake. And when your stone drops in, you have an opportunity to change cultures, to change attitudes, to change people, even in your families, because that's where it starts, no matter what. And so um, we're going to start at the very beginning tonight uh, in Genesis chapter 1, literally. And we're going to turn to Genesis chapter 1, I think it's verse 26. I should probably look at my notes at some point. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, and over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Just think about that. 
God created you in his image. Look at the person next to you. That person next to you is created in the image of God. Male and female. Guys, females are also created in the image of God. And ladies, men are also created in the image of God. Let's not forget that. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature. And then I've included um, a version from the message translation because sometimes those words can reach out and grab us. Um, And it says, God spoke. Let us make man in our image. Make them reflecting our nature so that they can be responsible for the fish in the sea. We are created to reflect the nature of God, and we are created with an ability to be responsible. Young people, you are responsible human beings. You have the image of God in you, and you are created to take responsibility wherever you are. This is not a thing like kids aren't responsible because children have the image of God. They are born to be responsible. So don't think that this is something that is just an adult concept. Every single child has the image of God and is capable of these things. And yes, the earth itself and every animal that moves on the face of the earth, God created human beings. He created them God-like. We have aspects of the very character of God in us, reflecting God's nature That's what we were created to do, to reflect God's nature. He created them male and female. God blessed them. God has placed his blessing on us. And he said, prosper, reproduce, fill the earth, take charge. Be responsible for fish in the sea and birds in the air, for every living thing that moves on the face of the earth. Never forget that you are born to be a powerful person. You are made to rule. You are made to have responsibility. And you are made to take charge. And you are born to be a powerful image bearer of the God that loves you so much. I think that it's exceptionally important that we get this concept. If we know what we are created to be and what we are created for, it changes how we behave. Bible scholars, social scientists, and psychologists have been telling us in a thousand different ways how important it is to believe what is correct and true because what we believe determines how we behave. And believe it or not, how we behave impacts how other people behave. It's not just about us. You see, my very behavior and my interactions with somebody else can change their behavior as well. I'll give you a few examples and explain why. There's something called a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's a psychological term, and um, I've got a couple of definitions up on the slides for you. It is a prediction that directly or indirectly causes itself to be true by the very terms of the prophecy itself, due to positive feedback between belief and behavior. Don't worry, if you don't get that one, we'll go to the next one. Any positive or negative expectation about circumstances, events, or people that might affect a person's behavior towards them in a manner that causes those expectations to be fulfilled. Let me explain it in a different way. A soccer coach 
might believe that Amy is a better soccer player than Ashley. And so what does he do? He tells Amy she's a better soccer player. He spends more time with Amy, developing her soccer skills. And what happens at the end of the season? Amy is a better soccer player than Ashley. Now, young people, you'll be interested in another study. They did this study at a uni on a university campus with young single people. And they got a group of guys, and they told them randomly, none of the data was true. They told them that particular girls were interested in them, were keen on them. That's what they told them. It wasn't true at all. So the guys then started acting in a way with those particular girls that eventually what happened by the end of the study is those particular girls started acting in a way that they were actually keen on the boys. With completely incorrect data, the behavior changed. That is the self-fulfilling prophecy. This might have happened to you when you were a kid. You might have gone to school and got a low mark on a maths test. And you might have come home and told your folks, oh my word, I failed a math test. And so your mother might have remembered that she failed a math test when she was 12 and said, you know what? You're obviously not good at math, just like your mother. And then the next time you study for a test, you're thinking you're not good at math, and so you don't really put everything in because you're gonna be bad at math. And voila, what happens? You eventually become bad at math. You see, what we believe about ourselves impacts our behavior. In fact, what we believe about other people impacts their behavior as well, because that's the self-fulfilling prophecy. So how does this relate to the image of God? We have to know what we're made for. We have to know what's in us so that we can be image bearers, because if we don't understand that, how are we going to relate? What if we forget that we have the very image of God in us, that we are born to be responsible? There are two things about this verse in, um, in Genesis, the chapter in Genesis, that are, I think are great implications for us. The first implication is that because we are created in the image of God, that is a relational image. Now, if you've been in church for any amount of time, you will have heard the image of God taught as a relational image. Let us make man in our image. That assumes that we are created for relationship. The other thing that I think that is an important implication is that because we are made in the image of God, there are no ordinary people. There is not one ordinary person in the room. C.S. Lewis, in a book called The Weight of Glory, has a famous quote, and he says, there are no ordinary people. You have never met a mere mortal. Everyone has been made in the image of God, and the person sitting next to you is not a mere mortal. You are not a mere mortal. You are created to relate to people, to be responsible, to take charge. And I think that we forget this, because in the light of this truth, how do we affirm the dignity of the people around us? In case you're a Bible scholar here tonight, and you might be wondering what the fall did, because surely we lost the image with the fall. No, we didn't. In Romans 8, verse 29, it says that we are being predestined to be conformed to the image of God. If you're not a Bible scholar, you can just skip this part, but I need to do it just to make sure that I keep the Bible scholars with us. In 2 Corinthians 2, verse 3 and 18, it says, I mean, chapter 3, verse 18, it says, and we with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image 
And then in Colossians chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, it says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on a new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. So there are a few things here that I'm reminded of in our culture, some lies that have crept into our culture that do not confirm the fact that you are created in the image of God. And I was praying this week about which ones to use. I've picked four. Four lies that I think have crept into our culture and even into the church that I just want to remind you that are lies. Here are some thoughts. Because I'm a man, I will struggle with pornography. No, you are born to bear the image of God. Because I'm a woman, I am manipulative. No, ladies, we bear the image of God. Women are too emotional to be leaders. Have you read some of the recent research on what women are doing in business? Women are powerful leaders. Don't believe that, woman. Men aren't emotional. Nonsense. Men are not capable of intimate relationships. What hogwash. We are created in the image of God as relational beings, and they are no ordinary people. Here's one. The things in your life that have gone wrong have created baggage. That's not true. When I travel, I've got suitcases of beautiful baggage. <laughs> you see, our mistakes can grow us and make us stronger. And there's a concept that when a bone is broken in the time that it's healing, that actual area is stronger than it was before. And eventually it returns to normalcy. You are born with the image of God on you. And no matter what you have experienced and what you have done, you will not carry baggage from it. Your mistakes can grow you. And you can be better for them. And now to the three points. I'm only getting there now. Because we bear the image of God and we are created for relationship and there is not a single ordinary person in here and we are going to drop that stone in the middle of the lake and it's going to have a ripple effect and impact our communities, our workplaces and our family because it only takes one rock to stir the waters. I'm going to give you three practical points on what this means in real life. The first one is to cultivate our conversation. I recently took a block module on conversation and we, on communication, and we had to read a book. One of the required texts for the course was a book called Bridges, Not Walls. And one of the things I love about studying social science and psychology is that so often we have research that confirms what the Bible has been saying for a thousand years. And this book was filled with research that really all they were doing was confirming biblical truths about what makes relationships work, how we can communicate well. And I want to sum it up in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21. In the Message Bible, it says this, words kill, words give life, they're either poison or they're fruits, and we get to choose. Susan Scott is an executive director who helps clients all around the world, changing the culture of their businesses. And she has written a book called Fierce Conversations, which is an interesting read. 
and I'm hoping one day that I will be a fierce conversationist. I'm certainly not there yet. But I've included some quotes from her work that I thought might be helpful. She says, conversations are the most important communication events that people experience. Our work, our relationships, and in fact, our very lives succeed or fail gradually and then suddenly, one conversation at a time. Have you got some relationships that have been failing gradually, one conversation at a time, and other ones that have been succeeding beautifully, one conversation at a time? Relationships exist in the very conversations that make them up. The conversation is the relationship, and we need to pay attention to our words. In other words, what she's saying is words kill, words give life, they're either poison or they're fruit, we choose. And I think that if I want to display the image of God and create a ripple effect wherever I am, I'm going to have to start choosing my conversations wisely because our words bring life and they impact other people. And if we are created for relationships, I need you and you need me and I need your encouragement and you need mine. The second aspect that I think is very important, important principle to apply, to apply to our relationships is knowing what we are responsible for and knowing what we're not responsible for. Because I've found when I take on responsibility for something that doesn't belong to me, I get really frustrated. For example, our children. When I used to take on responsibility for stuff that wasn't my thing, I used to get incredibly resentful, very angry, and eventually I'd lose love. I work with a lady in Johannesburg and she's given me permission to share her story. I saw her um, and she'd been on, to, on antidepressants for a number of years. So this is not, when I share a story like this, it's not a rule. It's one person at one time. It doesn't mean that this applies to everyone, okay? So, um, but she'd been struggling for a long time and been on antidepressants. And after chatting to her a number of times, um, we unpacked the fact that she had a 17-year-old, that she was still doing his homework for him. She was doing all of his projects, all of his stuff, teaching him all of the work, and she was incredibly depressed and incredibly frustrated and incredibly angry and incredibly resentful. You know why? Because she was trying to do somebody else's life, which actually wasn't her life. That is what we call the concept of boundaries. And the authors of the boundaries books were guys called Henry Cloud and John Townsend. And the principle that I'm explaining next is original with them. They use a verse in Galatians 6, verse 2 to 5. And it says this, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something, when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing 
themselves to someone else, for each one to carry his own load. There are two words that I want to pick out of this text. The first one is the word burden, and the second one is the word load. Now, it's interesting that in the original Greek, for those of you that don't know, the New Testament was written in Greek, and when you translate a language, the words in the original don't sound the same in English. They have different connotations. It doesn't carry the same stuff. And so really, when you, only when you understand a language properly do you understand the con connotations of the words and what they carry. So sometimes you'll hear Bible teachers talk about the original Greek or the original Hebrew because they want to try and help you understand the language and what the original authors meant. And that's what I'm going to do now. And we're going to start with the very first part. It says, carry each other's burdens. Now, the word for burden was a Greek word. Meant, and it, it means, the word is bare. Hello, Zach. I hear you. <laughs> and it means a weight. In fact, in the original Greek, there's an implication of this word, and it is a boulder. A boulder is something that is too heavy to carry on your own. And so because we created the image of God, which is a relational image, Paul says here to the church, carry each other's burdens. That's what it means. And if I was going to deny carrying somebody else's burden, a weight that's too heavy for them to carry, I'm really denying the very relational image that I was created in. So God says, well, Paul says, carry each other's boulders. There's sometimes that we go through things that we don't have the strength the courage, the understanding, the wisdom, the knowledge to carry it ourselves. And that burden needs to be shared with somebody else, and we need somebody's help to help us carry it. Now, the interesting thing is at the end of the verse, at the end of this passage, it uses a word, but each one should carry their own load. Why did Paul include this? Why does he have the burden and the load thing? Well, what's quite interesting is when you look, again, at the original Greek here, the word for load means a cargo. It has in it a connotation of the burden of daily toil. In other words, these loads are like knapsacks. It's not a boulder. It's an everyday type of lifestyle thing. So the Bible says that we must carry each other's burdens, but carry your own load. That means I'm not supposed to do everything for you, and you're not supposed to do everything for, for me, but I have a responsibility to you, but I have a responsibility for myself. Danny Silk says it like this, on a good day, I'm in charge of me. And he uses the concept about being a powerful person. I'm going to read something that Henry Cloud wrote that I don't think there's any, anybody can explain it better. He says, everyone has responsibilities that only he or she can carry. These things are our particular load that we need to take daily responsibility for. We are expected to deal with our own feelings, our own attitudes, and our own behaviors. Those we cannot expect anyone to carry, nor can we blame them on anyone else. No one is responsible for my attitude except me. No one is responsible for my behavior except me. No one is responsible for my feelings except me. 
And I don't think that we can get to the last point this evening unless we get this point. The last point that I'm going to talk about is how do we cultivate honor? Because if I don't learn that I'm in charge of my own feelings, my own attitude, my behavior, I can blame my bad treatment of you on you. And then I can't show honor. You see, honor comes from a, a place of it's undeserved and it's unearned. Honor comes from a position that you have because you are an image bearer. Does that make sense? So boundaries show us what I'm responsible for and what I'm not responsible for. And boundaries free me up to treat you in the way that you're created to be treated. Sorry, there's been a tad too much emotion. So the third point is to cultivate honor. And 1 Peter 2, verse 15 and 17, this is fast becoming one of my favorite scriptures as I'm just beginning to study honor properly. It says this, For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice. There's a whole message in that one statement. Not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as a bondservant of Christ. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. The context of this exhortation was in a governmental situation. The people that this was written to were serving in a nation where they disagreed with the governmental policies and the government culture. I won't say much more on that. Peter was talking about being good citizens in a culture that was very different from their own culture. And, in this, and this was an exhortation in the light of that to honor all people, even when people have different belief systems. We are called to honor. I find it so interesting in our culture that really, when people disagree with us or make a mistake, it is free game to dishonor. I made the mistake of clicking on some replies on a Humans of New York post the other day. These poor little bunnies, tiny children, were in this beautiful photograph, and I'm not quite sure still what they did wrong, but people were just coming out and lambasting these poor innocent children. I don't know how old they were. Just an opportunity to dishonor. What when people do something wrong? When great Christian leaders make a mistake? What is it, free game? Roast the pastor? What, because he made a mistake? When we make mistakes, that's when we need the most honor. When you see people around you make a mistake, go towards them. Love on them. I tell you what, guys, the guilt of my mistakes is more than enough. I don't need yours as well. Hold us up. Come towards us when people fail, when they make mistakes, when we're different from you. If we have a different theology, if we don't look the way we should, come towards people because you know what? There are no ordinary people. The person next to you bears the image of God. 
I've been researching on it all week because I'm really, it's just the beginning of it. I don't know much about it. Boundaries I know about and conversation I know about, but honor I'm way behind. So I'm learning right along. It's literally this week, I was trying to find everything I could on honor to try and make it part of me because it's not. And so it's something that I'm, I'm, I'm going to be learning and um, in a process. And I watched a whole lot of podcasts. And of course, Danny Silk wrote a book, um, A Culture of Honor. And believe it or not, I had it on my Kindle from years ago. Wish I'd read it all. Um, and he um, says a few things that I'm just going to read because I can't do it better than him. He said, honor is give people honor because people are valuable. There are no ordinary people. Every person that we come into contact with has been created. This, these are my words, not his. Everyone we've come into contact with, just in case you do an amen, I want that. <laughs> have been created on purpose by Heavenly Father, and they ca- carry the image of God, and that's why they're worthy of honor. Honor starts with the true value of things. <laughs> honor starts with the true value of people. The same value that God has for us. Think about the honor that Christ showed us while we were yet sinners. He died. We got a long way to go to honor people like that. Honor calls out the gold in us because it sees the gold. And that's why honor starts with a change of heart. The number one priority, this is Danny Silk, the number one priority in a culture of honor is to know the Father and to show his heart. This was Jesus' number one mission. He told his disciples, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And that is the cry of my heart. How I long for people to encounter me and to see God's heart for them, a heart of love. Not, you know what, my eggs weren't over easy and they're not hard enough. Or my baked beans aren't warmed up enough for my breakfast. Can you see where I'm going? What does the heart of God look like? What does the likeness of Christ look like when people make mistakes? Small mistakes, big mistakes. Danny Silk said, a culture of honor is created as a community of people who learn to see others in their God-given identities. The principle of honor states that acknowledging who God is says people will be in a position to receive the gift of who they are in their lives in our communities. In a culture of honor, leaders courageously treat people according to the names God gives them and not according to the aliases they receive from people. They treat people as friends, not slaves, as righteous, not sinners, as wealthy, not poor. Life flows through honor. The fruit of establishing a culture of honor is that the resurrection life of God begins to flow into people's lives, into homes and into communities, bringing healing, restoration, blessing, joy, hope, and wholeness. That's what honor does. And so... In conclusion, I want to leave you with something. I imagine that if you are culting your conversations well, those relationships are amazing. 
and if you know what you're responsible for and not what you're not responsible for, and applying that into relationships, they're gonna be amazing. And if you're honoring the people around you, those things are going well for you. But if you're not, I wanna give you some advice that someone gave me many, many years ago. And it's from, um, it's a short story, and it's called, There's a Hole in My Sidewalk. And this is when I had a gaping gap in my sidewalk, and it's an autobiography in five small chapters. Chapter one, I walk down the street. There is a deep hole in the sidewalk. I fall in. I am lost. I am helpless. It isn't my fault. It takes forever to find a way out. Chapter two, I walk down the street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I pretend I don't see it. I fall in again. I can't believe that I'm in the same place, but it isn't my fault, and it takes me a long time to get out. Chapter three, I walk down the same street. There's a deep hole in the sidewalk. I see it there. I still fall in. It's a habit, but my eyes are open, and I know where I am, and it is my fault, and I get out immediately. Chapter four, I walk down the same street. There's a hole in the sidewalk. I walk around it. Chapter five, I walk down another street. I pray that you will have the courage and the wisdom to walk down different streets this week. And in the things that aren't going well, let us be a people, a church, to walk down different streets and apply some of the stuff that makes us image bearers because that's what we were born to do.